your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast. Well, hello, White Sox fans. How you guys doing tonight? Welcome to the first edition of Future Sox live streaming on the interwebs. My name is Ian Eskridge. Joining me tonight is the managing editor and uh, grand poobah of Future Sox, James Fox. How you doing, James? I'm great, sir. It's, uh, you got me on here, so step one. <laughs> We're good so far. We're working. It. We're working towards it. We got some uh, some extra little things that we're going to do here and there, but uh, you know, we're we're working there. It's, uh, first first night, and uh, we made it. So, colossal crashes or anything like that as of right now. So uh, I don't want to jinx anything, but uh, you know, uh, here here we are. Uh, it is the middle of January, and the White Sox haven't really done a whole lot of. Uh, earth-shattering moves, um, but they have done you know a few things here and there that may or may not shore up what uh, what the White Sox lineup looks like next year. Uh, what do you think about how the White Sox offseason has gone so far? I think it's like it's a lot of moves. Obviously, I think the forty-man roster looks a lot different with big leaguers, right? Not not particularly great big leaguers. I do think. You know, it really seems like Chris Getz wants to be one of the best defensive teams in the American League. Um, I don't know if they're going to hit it all. So, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it on all these podcasts, like how bad we think this team's going to be. And I think it'll be like different bad, right? Like not hitting, but at least they're not going to play that brand of baseball where they're kicking the ball around constantly and you're losing 17 to four after everything spirals. I think that's what he's kind of trying to get rid of. So there's some placeholders, obviously, as along your Paul DeYoung's and Nikki Lopez's and you know the the two new catchers that you know with a heavy defensive emphasis and look I really I don't think they're done because I don't think the the defense guy is going to play Gavin Sheets in right field and I think there's probably some other spots too right so look I'm not expecting huge expenditures um but but I do think you know I I understand what he's trying to do, like if he truly has no money and that's what it seems. It seems like he has no money to spend and he's just decided, look, I, I have to develop our own young pitching. So I'm going to get two catchers that I trust and put a good defense on the field. And that seems to be the plan. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would concur. I mean, uh, you know, there, there is not a whole lot to inspire confidence when, when you talk about the, uh, the offensive, outputs of the people that they have acquired. So I don't know where the runs are going to come from this year. I mean, it, it you know, it kind of goes to the, the thought that a lot of people have had where it's just that uh, you hope that guys stay healthy or have a career year and you hope to catch lightning in a bottle. Cause I think that that's basically about the only way that you can think that they're going to score over three runs a game for next season. So yeah, I, I think you're I think you're banking on a resurgent Yoan Moncada, like in his what what is his last year, so he could maybe get paid. <laughs> Look, that wouldn't surprise maybe. me, just because like he's got to get paid again, right? 
like Aloy, you can't really count on. I didn't really think he'd be on the team, but it just kind of seems like he doesn't have much interest at that price point, like around the league, I don't think. So, but I also don't think Getz is going to play him defensively. So that's your DH. You know, we have the underachieving Andrew Vaughn so far where we're just waiting for a hitting coach to unlock him. And, you know, we've kind of talked about the other guys. Oh, yeah, and then Luis Robert. They do have one true superstar. Um, you know, and it is the Future Sox podcast. So, you know, hopefully they have another one coming soon, but definitely not at the beginning of the year with Colson Montgomery. Yeah, well, I mean, I this uh, kind of transitions into the next thing that we wanted to talk about. Um, when you talk about, uh, I mean, I agree with you, Colson Montgomery is a little ways off. Um, so when you talk about a guy that the White Sox are going to put out there, they're going to, that's going to have a, uh, superstar potential, at least, um, you think about, uh, what the possible return is on a Dylan Cease trade. Um, what's the latest that you're hearing on the Dylan Cease trade? Well, you know, so like I, I think we've heard Baltimore since the deadline, but the problem with Baltimore is like Mike Elias is he was in Houston. Houston never really traded their top prospects, and it seems like Baltimore doesn't want to either. And when you look at their prospect list anywhere, you know, they're loaded with guys that are 22 to 25 and they don't have spots for all of them. But Elias doesn't really care, I don't think, about that. So, you know, look, like I, I was hoping that they'd get a bunch of big market clubs in this thing. Red Sox, Mets, Yankees, and they would push Baltimore, Cincinnati, some of these other teams to make a move. I'm, I'm not going to say Chris Getz overplayed his hand because if you made me bet, I still think Cease is not on the White Sox. But it does seem like maybe Baltimore or a surprise or like bust at this point. So just with some of the stuff I've gathered, like over the last few days, even like looking at what John Heyman has written and looking at Nightingale and Rosenthal. It does seem like Getz has asked for like a lot, but it doesn't seem like that much. I know you probably saw the Yankee stuff like like they're balking at Spencer Jones. I mean, that that's like <laughs> crazy to me. Right. And yeah, so I think with Baltimore, like the Sox are probably asking for two of their big five. And look, I think people listening to this probably know who that is. I include Jordan Westberg in that. I don't think that's really realistic. But I think something headlined by Heston Kirstead or Westberg and then some of their guys further away, like I, I think that's probably a match. I'm hoping that Chris Getz, you know, has like a drop dead deal that he knows he'll do that he just hasn't come to the table with yet, right? He's still holding out for as much as possible. He's being told no. But then, you know, like two weeks from now, he's like, okay, I'll take this. And then like it happens. I'm hoping that's what it is because I am scared to death of, him pitching opening day for the White Sox. Cause I just, you know, not that I don't want to see Dylan cease. Like it doesn't matter. The White Sox aren't tanking this year, like on purpose because of the draft pick stuff. I just, I just don't want anything to happen to him or have him pitch poorly because they really need this trade return in order to be good again anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm kind of on the, uh, the same wavelength as you here. I, I don't think that, He's asking too much for Dylan Cease. I think that the thing is, is that obviously Elias is is prospect hugging pretty big, and uh, I'd say probably the Yankees are as well. And I th- it, to me, it seems like both of them have like some sort of a uh, 
not that Dylan Cease is going to cost them a lot of money because we know, you know, with his arbitration number just hitting at $8 million that, uh, you know, monetarily speaking, Cease is not going to cost he's, – he's probably the best uh, cost to uh, results ratio that you're going to get that's out there right now. But, uh, you know, I just don't see maybe, – maybe they're just trying to not spend – money here. I don't know. I, I'm still trying to figure out what's going on here as well, because there there's a reason why a trade hasn't happened yet. And it's probably because uh, Getz is asking for a reasonable return and they're just not ready to give it up yet. I could, yeah, I could see that. And the thing that I found interesting, so John Heyman mentioned like a few days ago, and I don't know exactly how it was written, but he said that the White Sox want Jordan Westberg, essentially, right? Now, Jordan Westberg isn't on prospect lists anymore. He's graduated. So some of the White Sox fans I talk to, like, are convinced that that means he's, like, not a top prospect anymore. You know, obviously, that's <laughs> yeah. that's not really how this works. But but then I saw today from Bob Nightingale that, you know, they asked for that they're not going to do a deal without one of Kowser or Kerstad. So then I just kind of put together, like, look, that seems to be where a holdup is, right? Like, I don't think Jordan Westbrook is a, Westberg is a second piece. I think it is unrealistic if they're asking for one of Kowser or Kerstad and Westberg and other stuff. So I could see where, like, that would be an issue if that's what it is. But to me, like, some of the packages I've seen, I don't have much interest in Joey Ortiz. I mean, that's a 26-year-old all-glove guy that's he's a big leaguer but like that that's just like not what the white Sox need you know like norby can really hit but like he might be a left fielder like to me that's why like and some people disagreed and you know i put this on some forums and on twitter like the two guys that i think are sleepers in that system that are going to be top 100 prospects this year are dylan beavers who is a you know like a supplemental first rounder i think out of cal last year the year before um and then a right-hander chase mcdermott like if you could get both of those guys, but Westberg had to be your headliner, I think I'd almost prefer that to like a cursed dad package where we have to take Joey Ortiz and like some filler. I just, you know, like I just, there's a, there's certain guys in that system that just don't really do much for me. So I was really hoping that the Yankees would step up here, but it doesn't really sound like they're going to. Yeah, that's unfortunate. The guy I've been on with the, uh, with the Orioles has been uh, Samuel Basayo. And, uh, you know, like his positionally, he's not the ideal fit for the White Sox, considering that uh, he's probably not going to stick at catcher. Um, but, I mean, prodigious power and uh, has, has looked really good. I mean, I think he played in uh, three levels last year. And that's that's uh, a guy that I'd like to take a stab at if he's going to be, you know, like if your secondary guy is going to be a little bit uh, lower, but they're saying now that uh, he's going to end up like top three, possibly top three in the system, you know, when the rankings come out. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. It do- it seems like Mayo and Basayo have jumped those other guys, the guys that we've kind of, t- I mean, obviously Jackson holiday is number one, like in all of baseball. Right. But if Kowser and Kerstad are still on lists, it seems like Mayo and Basayo might've jumped in front of those guys. Now, like a lot of Kowser's value is like him staying in center field, um, which to the White Sox, like, isn't that important? Cause like Luis Roberts going to be in center field. Um, so, and that's the other thing with Baltimore too, is like, you know, there's first, there's first base risk with Kirstad. 
for like the White Sox, it's not that big a deal because I think he's going to mash and he hits left-handed so we can find a spot, right? But if you're Baltimore, you already have Adley Rushman. Kerstad could end up at first. Basayo could end up at first. Mayo could end up at first. So, <laughs> you know, and, and look, like Mike Elias typically hasn't really cared, right? Because it'll all sort itself out in the end. And I think they'd like to make a trade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, whatever it is, they're, they either are unwilling to make any sort of trade or Chris Getz is still asking for a little bit too much. We'll see if uh, Getz comes down at all and see if they can get this done. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the things that uh, a, a lot of people are worried about is the starting rotation. And I know that uh, you just did a, uh, a feature on Socks in the Basement. And uh, one of the things that you guys talked about was the starting rotation. And one of the things uh, to me personally um, is absurd. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that's been talked about in the last week is Garrett Crochet making a run at being a starter. How much run do you think that has? Um, do you think that that's even close to re- being a real realistic thing this next season, other than if it's in the minors? Not, you know, I think it has to be in the minors. If they're doing it, it's in the minors, and you get your year of control back, and you see what you can do. I mean, look, I was like when they made that pick. You know, we hosted a show live, I believe, and there was a lot of talk with me and Josh Nelson, and Rankin didn't do that one, I don't think. And Josh was convinced from the beginning, like he's a reliever. He watched a lot of college baseball, way more than I do. <clears throat> and you know, I just kind of knew what the experts were saying and what Mike Shirley had said. And some people did legit think that he could start, like he had good enough stuff to start Mike Shirley said after the draft like we think he's a number three starter right well pandemic happens we're all wowed by him coming out in relief against Cincy and then the turning point I think was that next offseason when they should have been stretching this kid out you know to whatever even if he's not starting like at least you're using him 70 plus innings right like in in some sort of high leverage relief role, but you could throw two and two thirds occasionally, but no, like Tony LaRusso needs a loogie. And that's <laughs> essentially what they turn this guy into. And then he's, you know, he's been hurt since. So the one thing, like, I don't mind them trying this because like, I'm not sold that he can like pitch in high leverage anyway. Like, right. I just, I don't know that he can throw four to five times a week. So you might as well try this and see if you can salvage something. But trust me, like we've talked about this a ton on the show. Like, I I don't know how you ever build up enough innings for him to be like an actual starting pitcher. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think he'll either be in Birmingham or Charlotte with this collection of guys that we're going to talk about. But I mean, yeah, that's that's the only way. I mean, they cannot like throw him out there every five days in Chicago. It's not going to work that way. Yeah, so you know, and this is like something that I've been saying for ages is that you know, 101 mile an hour Garrett Crochet, fantastic, you know, but is that going to be, uh, you know, is that going to be something that you're going to be able to uh, use for more than an inning or two as a long relief guy? Uh, is this something that you're going to be able to use in, uh, you know, for five six innings as a starter? I don't think so, but what I've also seen is that 96-mile-an-hour Garrett Crochet is not nearly as effective. So where does that leave him, you know? I don't know. And the thing is is that the the most that we've seen him top out at now 
uh, down in uh, Charlotte last year, I think was 97. So, you know, if he's not getting back up to that elite velo, what are we even looking at anymore, you know? Right, and he, and he hasn't thrown the secondaries enough to have any idea whether they're even playable, right? Like, if it's a plus slider and a pretty good change and he's 96 to 98, like, okay, fine. But it just it hasn't been that. He's been fastball only. He walks guys. He's been hurt. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not great, man, but it all goes back to kind of, you know, you're, you're taking a guy with that low innings, like with the 11th overall pick in the draft. Like, I, I kind of hated it from the beginning because it's just not the way that I typically like to do things. Like if there's that much reliever risk, like what are you doing that high? But at this point, if you're, if you're Chris Getz, you just want to salvage something like out of the situation. And Chris Getz has, you know, he doesn't owe anything to Garrett Crochet. Like he doesn't need Garrett Crochet to be on the big league team. If he's got to go down, he's got to go down, you know, whether fans or whoever consider that service time manipulation or whatever, like, but this experiment is not one that's going to be conjured up in the big leagues. Yeah. I, at some, you know, like gets has got to salvage some sort of value here because if, if, I mean, he doesn't have to, I guess, but he's going to at least try to get some value out of this. Cause at this point, if you don't get, uh, I mean, you're just looking at a wasted pick at that point. Um, Speaking of wasted picks and uh, and meddling in drafts, um, Jeremy Haber is being said to uh, be an advisor and is, uh, I don't know, they're shipping him off to uh, the Arctic Circle or something to uh, go work somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so sh- Shipping out to Boston, I think. He's yeah, ship it, it yeah. out to Boston. Um, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I don't think they'd take him. Um, yeah. But uh, Jeremy Haber's on his way out. Um, how are you feeling about that uh, turn of events? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's positive. Like, I, look, I've met Jeremy Haber a couple times and had, like, positive interactions. But the one thing I will say is, like, from talking to amateur scouts and just, you know, other people around draft time, he had a lot of influence in the draft room. And from what I, what I've kind of gathered is like, it's a lot of influence that he shouldn't necessarily have. Now you always hear occasionally about Ken Williams comes in the room and puts his foot down. You're the executive vice president of the organization. Like it is what it is. I hate it. Right. But it's Ken Williams, Jeremy Haber sitting there on his computer telling you to take a college hitter when, you know, the entire staff is like on board with taking a prep guy and going the whole strategy. Like it's, it's probably kind of annoying, but you know, you can choose to be one of, what 30 big league scouting directors or, or you can quit at that point, you know? So I think it's kind of, you know, not that Mike Shirley and his staff didn't like Jacob Gonzalez, but like, I just, I wasn't expecting that pick because, you know, I, I had kind of been under the impression that if it wasn't going to be Blake Mitchell, who was already gone, by the way, he went to Kansas city. There were a couple other high school guys that I was expecting. And then all of a sudden it was Jacob Gonzalez And then Jacob Gonzalez signed for as cheap as he signed for. So, yeah, look, I can't tell you that they're going to make the proper picks every year with Mike Shirley and his staff picking the guys, but at least you're letting the guys that are doing the work make make the pick or make the suggestion, right? Like, if they draft somebody that that stinks, it's ultimately going to fall on Chris Getz, right? It's going to fall on the general manager. Like, nobody's talking about – like, okay, maybe some of us are right. And Nick Hostetler was a really good man too. But like, you know, when people talk about Zach Collins and, 
you know, some of the other busts. Like that's on Rick Hahn because Rick Hahn was the GM, right? So that's ultimately what it's going to be. But I do think it sounds like Chris gets, you know, at least like the people that he puts in place, like department heads are like able to do their jobs. So that's one thing I am looking forward to going forward. You know, I wish Jeremy Haber the best, but when you're going to clean out, I like full clean outs like this. So it's it's good that you don't really have many hangers on. Yeah. I mean, he, I, this is the same thing I said about Hostetler, you know, a super nice guy. Um, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, the results are what the results are. And, you know, we've seen with the team, regardless of, you know, what his station was with everything is that I'm with you. The full clean out would have been ideal, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we still have gets around. So that, that is what that is. And we'll see ultimately how that, uh, how that unfolds. Um, and I've heard, I've heard positives there though, right? Like at least the good thing is like, like I've heard if they're going to promote internally, they, they hired the right guy. Right. Cause it could have been Jeremy Haber. Like, like, you know, like, so, I mean, Chris Getz was the one that was the most qualified. He's brought in people from the outside. I know it's all Kansas city Royals. I, I know like, and even like people were mad over Jin Wong this week, he's literally going to write contracts and exchange arbitration. And like, that's fine. That's <laughs> that part's not that big of a deal. Right. So like, look, I'm willing to give Chris Getz the benefit of the doubt. He might be okay. It's just, he's in an impossible situation because of who the owner is. And because of like, there was no process for hiring him. I said that from the beginning, this could work three years from now. We could love Chris Getz, but I mean, he's going to take arrows here initially because he, he doesn't really have a choice. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, there's, uh, there is pretty much with the way that he was hired. There's, there's no way that he can right off the bat, come in with a clean slate and be like, Oh no, everything's going to be different. Cause everybody's got that, you know, he's got that stink of how things turned out on him, regardless of what position he was in, what decisions he was making. You know, there's not really a whole lot he can do there. Um, so tomorrow the international market opens up. The white Sox have a few guys that are, uh, said to be linked to them that they are uh, supposed to be signing with. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell me about uh, a couple of those, the, the couple of guys that we do know about at this moment. Yeah. So, you know, I'll say I have a piece up on the website. I usually like preview the international class and they, they have like just under $6 million to spend. Um, last year, we know they had similar, they did not spend it all. At least they traded it for two guys that are interesting, right. As, as instead of, what they used to do with the yeah. money. But I mean, Eduardo Herrera is their top guy. There's really no way to judge how good these players are. Ben Badler has him ranked 16th, but that's because it's the 16th biggest bonus. So it is $1.8 million that was reported by fan graphs. Um, and I think he was like number 11 at, at MLB. But I mean, look like for anybody that doesn't know, like these kids are usually signed at 13 or 14 years old and you're projecting a body type. And Eduardo Herrera was a shortstop and, you know, now he's six, three, 200 pounds and he's moved to third and in his write up at MLB pipeline, he's being compared to Albert Pujols. So I love when we compare 16 year olds, to hall of famers, if he turns out to be Albert Pujols, that would be a great signing. I think Ian. I would, I would enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty good, (laughs) but no, I mean, so he's got some of them, the biggest power in the class. Um, so he'll be a right-handed power hitting third baseman. He likely, I would imagine, plays in the Dominican Summer League. 
next year. So, you know, you'll be tracking those scores at noon on a Wednesday during the season to see how many home runs uh, Eduardo Herrera has. Jurdrick Profar is another one. He's out of Curacao. Yes, it's Jurickson's Pro, Jurickson Profar's younger brother. He's signing for 700000 Sounds like an athletic shortstop. But he's also, like, sprouted up to 6'3", which is a little bit interesting. Um, and then the third guy was listed as a catcher, Jesus Prom, uh, Promaldi, or Promodi, Promoli is what it is. Um, but he's apparently moved to third, too, and he's just another mm. big power guy, lefty power. So, look, that's about 500 k Right. So I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do a ton of math, but it looks like just over what, like 3 million. Yeah. So, it's like half. Yeah. So last year they announced them in a couple of, you know, a couple of different days. They announced all the guys from the Dominican, all the guys from Venezuela. It was probably 30 guys total. Um, you know, and Javier Magoyan, somebody that we're going to talk about, he was a 75 K signing last year out of Venezuela. He had 10 homers. Um, I think he's going to be a top 30 guy everywhere. I think he will be at Pipeline BA. He definitely will be for us when we do our list. So, look, I kind of like this strategy. Like, I don't know that any of these guys are going to be great, but I like signing 25 teenagers, like, instead of, you know, a Cespedes or, you know, you're you're just, like, waiting for a 22-year-old Cuban that's going to be your savior, and then you rush him through the minor leagues, and that was, like, half your bonus pool. So, you know, I think Marco Patti – He's been hit or miss, but I do think some of his hits have been when he's been forced to like spend 300,000 or some of these, you know, Brian Ramos, one of the best prospects in the system, $300,000. You know, I talked about this on socks in the basement too, but like Lenny and Sosa might be nothing. Right. But I mean, even if he's a fringe big leaguer, like for 300,000, like Jose Rodriguez signed for 50 K. So I kind of like Patty's track record with some of these lesser guys. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he signs a couple of interesting ones, you know, that we follow throughout the season that, that end up on top 30 lists. So this is a step I think in the right direction because at least they're signing teenagers. All right. Well, here's let's, let's uh, take this. Okay. So, you know, one thing that we saw this year in the rule five, and it's the reason why we got uh, Shane Drowen and Jose Ramirez from the Red Sox uh, because one thing that the Red Sox do is that they generally sign like 35, 40 guys in the international market. And that's why they can't afford to keep all these guys each year. And they end up having to let guys go through the uh, Rule 5 draft. So we end up with those two guys. Not that they're going to end up sticking, you know, or that, you know, we're going to send them back. They might be good. They might not. We'll see how it works out. Um, but when you look at, um, uh, when you look at, Somebody like, say, the Braves, where they spend their entire bonus on one guy. And then you've got the Red Sox, where they're casting a wide net, I like to say. Um, where would you rather – would you rather spend $5 million on one guy? Hey, fabled family, Rita, thank you for the follow. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I mean, would you rather do something like that where you're pumping – all your money into a guy that you think is going to end up being one of your top, you know, top five prospects, or would you rather, you know, look at, uh, you know, spreading that money out to a bunch of people and trying to find, you know, uh, some diamonds in the rough, as opposed to going after these guys that you know that you're going to have to spend a ton of money on. Where, where do you sit in that? So I think my preference would be to sign a bunch of guys, but I think like occasionally, 
if you give five million to the best player in the class, that would be fun too. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think you can do that every year. Now it looks like the Padres have basically made a habit of it, and nobody's going to criticize like the way they do things. Like, so they got Ethan Salas this year. They got the best guy, Leo Dallas DeVries. He's probably about four million. But like you said, I mean, the Braves signed are signing Jose Perdomo. It's like over five million. They have the same bonus pool as the as the White Sox, so like five point nine. So I haven't even really looked closely if they have any other listed signings on Badler's board, but I mean, yeah. So, I mean, look, there's a very good chance that Jose Perdomo is awesome, but if he's not like it's, it's your entire bonus pool. Right. So yeah. no, I think I kind of like Cleveland makes a habit too of spreading out the money and look, I like, and that doesn't mean like everybody's 500 K you can have a couple of million dollar signings in there. You could have a $3 million signing and then, you know, a bunch of guys for less than that. I think one way to do it is pitching. Like for anybody that follows this market closely, the pitchers do not make very much money. Um, and when these guys are signed, they're so young that all of a sudden, like now they're 17, they're throwing 95. And it's like, oh, this guy, why did this guy sign for $30,000? It's like, well, because they they agreed to a deal when they were 13 years old. So, you know, that's that's one of the reasons. It's, it's one thing that Houston has done a very good job of. Like a lot of those pitchers on their big league staff were low dollar signings. They did a really good job with some of those guys in the minors. We're going to have one this year. And Chris, Christian Mena, I mean, when he signed with the White Sox, Ben Badler came on this show and kind of raved about him. And yep. Like ever since then, like I, my interest was peaked, right? And then you kind of see Mena fly through the system. Um, he had some issues last year, but like I think that guy's going to pitch in the big leagues this year. So even if that's a number four starter, I think they paid him two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. So you know, like I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I think I think you want more cracks at the apple, and like the biggest reason for that is because you just don't know what these guys are going to develop into because they're just so young. I think you're bound to get one or two of them if you sign 25 every every year. Yeah, I that's kind of how I felt. And, you know, like I, that was one thing I was wondering what was going to happen now that, uh, you know, that Han and Williams are gone. Was Marco Patti's strategy going to be, you know, was he going to be allowed to to work the system a little bit more? Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Who knows what's, you know, like I, we'll see, you know, as, uh, you know, as, you know, hopefully as we get here, you know, we get to see some more guys, you know, coming in and we don't have, uh, you know, two and a half million dollars sitting in the bank, you know, in July, which is something that we're used to seeing and then them dumping the money off. Let's hope that that's not, uh, you know, what we're looking at here. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge problem. And like, I didn't know like where, like what Marco Patty's actual strategy is. Like we're like a decade into Marco Patty and everybody I talked to that has sources in the Dominican and like everybody, he's highly respected. Like yep. Marco Patty's at these events and people talk about him. Like he's like, he's revered, but then you look at like the nature of the white Sox classes and they're, and they're, they really are hit or miss. Um, so, I mean, is that Jerry Reinsdorf, Ken Williams, like the Cuban pipeline thing, like they, they want developed guys already that could get to the majors quickly and you're spending $2 million on it. Like, is that them? Is that truly the way Patty would prefer to operate? Like, I, I don't really know. Um, I know Patty is like a little bit older too, and he doesn't have like the director of international scouting title. I always yeah. kind of note that, right? Like Marco Patti and Jim Tomey have the same title, which is, mm. which is kind of weird to me, but I mean, because one of them 
like is a huge part of the organization and the other one just like walks around at spring training. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, so like, look, I, not that I don't know anything about this. Right. But if they have like all of a sudden within the next year, like a director of international operations that isn't Marco Patty, like that wouldn't shock me. Um, or if you just change his title and like give him a real title and he is your guy, like he might be their guy. Um, but yeah, that, that was like one of the things I was eyeing with some of these other changes and maybe it just hasn't been done because like his market is January 15th tomorrow. Right. So yeah. maybe it's kind of like the NFL, like scouting staffs change like in July, like after the draft happens, maybe, maybe we see some sort of shakeup or, you know, he kind of talks about what he wants to do, but I mean, he was in, he was in uh, Toronto before I know he was a Ken Williams guy. So I don't know. I don't really know. We'll see. But they need to get more bang for their buck out of the international market for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that you know, like the guys winning international scout of the year awards, you know, so clearly, you know, and I, and I see uh, a, him catching a lot of flack on social media. And, I, you know, I don't know as if that's, not, you know, again, I don't know whether that's something that is uh, warranted just because of the results that they've gotten. I don't know what kind of constraints are being put on him. You know, I don't know, like, uh, who's telling him what he can and can't do. So, I mean, really, who knows? So. Yeah, and in this marketplace, like, you know, it's just so hard. Like, you look at, like, Ethan Salas last year. Like, obviously, like, Wander Franco uh, is a topic we're not really going to broach, I don't think. But, look, I mean, like, the the Rays find Wander Franco when he's 14 years old they commit $5 million and then he's basically socked away like with his trainer until he's allowed to like come to your facility. Like I had always kind of heard that, that Jerry just wasn't really a fan of committing that much money to 14 year olds. Right. So, but the thing is like, if you're not gonna do that, like you're just not going to be a factor in the market, which is like my interpretation of why the white Sox would be left with money and it, it wasn't even necessarily that they get all the Cuban players because they have like all these scouts in Cuba. A lot of times it was like they were one of the only teams that had money when these guys would defect and get here. And it's like, okay, you're a free agent now, but teams have money tied up in these classes for years. I mean, the international scouting directors are in the Dominican right now, scouting kids for 2027. Like, it's just not, you know what I mean? So like you could have, you could have some stud come off the Island and, you know, tomorrow that's free to sign with anybody and nobody'd be able to give him $3 million because everybody's money's all tied up. So I do think yeah. that's part of it, right? Like a is like breaks free or an Oscar Colas breaks free. And yeah, like the White Sox are an easy landing spot. Like you had Minnie Minoso and Jose Abreu and the list goes on and on, but they also have money, which none of the other teams like seem True. to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we'll see how this whole thing, uh, how this whole thing shapes up. I mean, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot, like you said. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, like you said, because you're talking to these kids when they're like 13, 14 years old initially. And, you know, Marco Patti's building these relationships, and that's, you know, worked. I mean, you know, realistically, if you look at the White Sox top 30, you know, a good amount of those people are people that Marco Patti brought into the organization. But uh, ultimately, also, when you see the, the farm rank, is that enough? I don't know. So I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like it, right? And it seems like all these, like when you see deadline trades, 
these are the guys that get moved like all the time. It's always like, you know, somebody's you know, even if it's just like a throw in, right? Like the Rays do it typically, like don't give them like a Dominican signing that's in a ball because they're going to swindle you. Right. Like it's yeah. don't trade with the A's. Like who's their, uh, their top prospect was a, like a throw in from Cleveland. Like it's just absolutely, you know, insane right now. So yeah, they need to do any, and even like, look, I mean, like Fernando Tatis jr. Right. Fernando Tatis Jr. was signed for $700,000. Like, it's not like he was some top five player in the class that the White Sox drafted and then traded. Should they have known better? Should they have traded him? Absolutely not. They shouldn't have traded him. But, I mean, it's not like he was some, like, master signing. I think he was 29th in the class, according to Jesse Sanchez that year. And then he turned into a stud. And, like, it happens, you know. But, um, so that that's just kind of with this market. Guys come out of nowhere. Um yeah, I think Tatis was batting like 168 or something like that when he was traded. You know, it's like, and yeah. he was, and he was striking out a ton and wasn't hitting a bunch of home runs. So yeah. you know, it's like, you know, Elijah Tatis. I mean, granted, we've seen pictures of them standing next to each other, and you know, like Elijah is like a foot and a half shorter, but um, you know, like he struck out at the, you know, roughly around the same rate of like 35, 40 percent that that. Uh, you know, Fernando was striking out at when he was traded and then he goes to, you know, San Diego system and he becomes a stud and I don't know, say what you want about, uh, extra little, uh, you know, things that might've aided in his, uh, right. Ascension to, uh, being a top uh, prospect, but, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. So it is interesting. Like I, you know, I brought it up on, on socks in the basement the other day, like I, I try not to get too excited over DSL numbers, but I also look kind of around to see what other people are saying. Right. Cause look, like I noticed Javier McGoyan had 10 homers. Like it's, it's un, it's uncommon. So when Ben Badler kind of starts talking about it and the writers of baseball America say he's a definite top 30 guy. Okay. I'll listen. Right. But there's been a lot of times where guys have had success on the dirt fields in the DSL. Then they go to Arizona never to be heard from again. And they don't even make it to Kannapolis, right? It's just, exactly. it, it happens all so many times, right? Then you so, mean Bailey was supposed to be yeah, amazing. And, yeah, and, and it, because he got on base at a 440 clip in the DSL with horrible umpires and horrible pitchers. And it's just really tough. You have to look for, you really have to look for loud tools. Like homers, homers are important. Strikeouts are important. You know, all, all of that stuff. But even then, like until they're in high A, you know, I mean, it's it's really difficult to know what you have unless you have one of like the stud studs. Those guys show up like right away and you can tell. Yeah. When I did uh, I did uh, the uh, um, interview with Andy Barquette, two of the guys that he said were the guys that were the ones to watch. And that was. uh Javier uh, Mogollon and then uh, Abraham Nunez. He said well, those yeah. were the two guys to watch um, from the current class from the DSL. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what comes of them. You know, like you said, it's it, the DSL. You know, <laughs> when half the time these guys can't find the strike zone, the pitchers can't find the strike zone, so the hitters are swinging at things that they shouldn't be swinging at. So, you know, we'll see. Um, you have and any... Nunez was, I mean, Nunez was a $700,000 signing. So, you know, significant. 
Um, same thing. They had like a catcher last year that was pretty high. And then Luis Reyes, who will follow this year to see, cause he, he did start to like figure it out a little bit. He Reyes was like one of the top Dominican starters, um, struggled really bad at the beginning. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's, I think anything 500 K or above is generally interesting and like worth following. I say that. And then Javier Magoyan was $75,000. So, but even in, even with him being 75 K Ben Badler listed him as like the sleeper in their class, like before they even played games. So listen to Ben, that guy knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Exactly. Just, uh, you know, especially with guys like that, that, you know, if I, if I can't see anybody, you know, if I can't, if I can't put my eyes on them, you know, I just, uh, I automatically defer and just go, these guys know more than me about these guys. Cause I've never seen them take a swing. So I have no idea. So, um, yeah. And it's, it's going to be unlikely that these guys like, you know, you're not jumping stateside right away just cause of like January now, instead of July, like the bonus rules are really bad. I'm not going to get into it on this, but guys are really shortchanged if you bring them to the United States early. So look, unless it's one of these older guys, like most of them are just going to play in the DSL and then you won't see them till instructs. Yeah. Not, not a fan of how they've uh, changed the whole date system, but yeah, I agree. It's one of those things that'll get us uh, down a rabbit hole for another half an hour and we don't need to do that. Uh, Do you have anything else uh, this week that uh, you're looking to talk about or are you good? No, I think I'm good. Follow us, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, do what I can to get more information on their international signings. I'm not sure that the White Sox will have it out on Monday. They're, they're notoriously late. Maybe they'll be different under gets, but look, you really, you really can't release that stuff until the players actually sign. And I don't know whether they'll be in the DR on Monday or whether they will be in Venezuela. We'll see what gets announced, but some of that stuff will trickle out as the week goes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my name is Ian Eskridge, uh, switching my, uh, X handle here to uh, at Daily White Sox. Um, you can follow James Fox at uh, James Fox nine seventeen over on the X slash Twitter. Um, also, uh, futuresocks.net. You can find all the uh, written content and uh, all of the uh, evaluations and everything that James is doing over there. Um, yeah, like he said, uh, we have uh, merged houses from White Sox Daily to Future Sox. So any kind of content or all that stuff will all be housed on futuresocks.net, which is now getting a uh, little bit of an overhaul. And as you can see uh, with this whole thing, um, <laughs> that the uh, the podcast and uh, all that stuff is also getting an overhaul. So uh, I got some exciting things coming here into the into the new year, and uh, we appreciate you guys for listening, taking the time to uh, check us out, give us a follow, uh, subscribe to the podcast on. Uh, you know, your favorite platform for podcasts. Uh, we appreciate you. Um, for myself and appreciate you guys, you guys have a great night and we will catch up with you guys next week. Thank you. Have a good night.